0: Welcome to this thread of the podcast. My name is Susie Kahn, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kailak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast, so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go, to go a little further and deeper, or to find other information, or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something, even a donation. Thanks for listening. Years ago, I wrote this novel. It was at a time when my younger children were on the cusp of going from childhood to teenage years, which was traditionally the coming of age stage of young people. And I was inspired by the books that some of my older children had read and the ones that my younger children were reading that were those coming of age formative stories and I wanted to write something. I wondered at the time if there was a space, a gap for stories that would inspire or help with a future vision for the young people of today. I think I was very inspired. There were quite a few different threads of inspiration, but I had been reading stories about initiations from uh Indigenous cultures and stories about how community got together around initiation for the village for children. But then I came across this one story, stood out from the rest, because unlike the rituals that were for an individual child coming of age, which we had tried to duplicate in some way in our family, we'd offered choices and opportunities from these stories of initiation to our children. And we had had lovely experiences and they had had challenging and interesting experiences from those inspirations. One of our children joined us in a circle of women. Several of them did things that were challenges, like one slept alone in the woods in a shelter, one guided another of their siblings over a mountain. And much later, one of our children ran a great distance on their own, staying at people that they connected with. So we had these experiences of an individual initiation, but this story was about how a whole community made a choice about how to choose their guide or their community I think it came from the Lakota tribe. What they had done in the past was divine over the wombs of those who were pregnant in the village until they chose a particular baby that was coming. And then they asked that young woman to come and be taken care of by the village in a cave nearby in a place where she could be sheltered and looked after but where she and her baby would be in the semi-dark would not come out until much much later and in fact the child didn't come out until the coming of age so this child was born everybody visited this child in the cave And told them stories of the outside world and how amazing it was and introduced them to each of the community. But they didn't leave the cave until they came of age. And the idea was that as they came out into the world as a young person, that they would be awestruck by everything being more than had been described to them. So no matter what stories were told to them, of butterflies, or insects, or birds, or landscape, or the people and how they lived together. Everything was more amazing than they could imagine. But it was with this reverence of awe that they would then be positioned to guide the community on the choices that they made to keep life in balance, because they would never lose that sense of awe. So whether it's a true story or not, I found it very inspirational, but I also wondered about the lengths that a community would go to and why, what could have caused such a almost extreme idea of initiation for the whole community of their guide. And I think I was particularly aware of how could you have had a community, how could the young woman I had had children. I had been pregnant and the idea that I would agree to go and have this experience of living apart and caring for my child in this way. So I was very curious about what would cause a whole community to make these kinds of agreements. I heard and read more about the Native American peoples that speak to the fact that as human species, when we got up and walked and when we did that as is imagined in the savannas of Africa. We had tools and hunted as we spread out and as we competed with the other hominoids across the planet and as the landscapes at the time, the connection between continents, that there were only a few places that we went to where the living was the same as had been on the savannah, like maybe on the steppes of Russia, where you had grasslands and big, big grazing animals, or whether it wasn't until maybe coming down out of the North harsh environments or up through South America, the Native Americans that came out onto Savannah had this easy hunting again. And the easy hunting was huge mammals that don't exist anymore because we hunted them out of existence. And you follow man across expansion and realized that hunting ability was something that eradicated species. What I imagined from some of the stories is this first period where the living was easy, where there was an abundant resource of big mammals, woolly mammoths, there were saber-toothed tigers, there were all these things across, but there were huge grazers and You imagine this time when people are hunting and they're hunting something that has never seen a two-legged hunter with a spear that works in coordinated packs. And so it's a very abundant resource time and we live in a time like that. So that was of interest to me where the energy that has come from oil has meant that we have not needed the labour of ourselves as primary producers, we've been able to use this machine labour that comes from oil that when you think about the horses that used to plough fields in the early days of human agriculture or oxen or other what were called beasts of burden, then when you have the early tractors in you have this notion of horsepower in a tractor. So if you had a hundred horsepower tractor, that is imagining a field with a hundred horses in it. So this incredible resource that we've had has allowed us change our landscapes and behave in certain ways, but it also makes us lose skills. And so what I wondered about this parallel of the time when the Native Americans would have reached the point where they maybe didn't realise the tipping and collapse point of the species that they had become dependent on for however many hundreds of years it took to eradicate these big, big mammals. And then there are stories that are called times of lamentations in the ancestral stories of Native Americans. And there's periods of famine and there's even stories of cannibalism and just this dreadful collapse time. And so that's a clue for me, and at least the way I imagine the stories that come now as great wisdom teachings from the Native Americans that many people the world over have been inspired by, as they have been told in wider and wider audiences, that lead you to wonder, so was it that things got really terrible? And from that place, that as parents and as a community, that people would come together and say, I wonder what we're going to need to do as survivors to make sure that we never let things get that out of balance again, that we never lose our skills. And so you get these amazing teaching stories and potentially a ritual like the one that I've described. So this interest in what would happen, what would we do for our children to prepare them for the collapses that might be ahead of our species. So when I was writing this in 2010, I had become very involved in the transition town movement. I was connected to people in permaculture. I was connected to people in ecovillages. And in those circles in 2010, it was very alive in the conversation that near term human species collapse was possible, that other forms of collapse were on the horizon in terms of other species and biodiversity losses that were increasing. And 10 years later, at the point where we have just come through a global pandemic year, and it is the kind of thing that is one of the system feedbacks. There are many system feedbacks that the whole planetary systems are under stress and that human species in particular are under stress as our systems that we've designed, that we've been party to are having effects back in a feedback loop on humans ourselves. Because there are many people who've understood for some time that there are diseases in the animal kingdom in the species that are our relations that can hop onto humans and cause these kinds of pandemics. And those have been happening since humans are around. In fact, there is a lovely teaching story, again, maybe coming from these traditions of understanding when the Native Americans lived in balance. There is a teaching story that is about The Origins of Disease, and it is an idea that the creator noticed, and this is a story from long ago, that the humans were becoming very plentiful, and it concerned the creator. And so the story goes that the creator went to the animals and said, could you create some diseases that would attack the humans, and that would help keep their numbers in check. And the animal species said, we could do that. And then continued in this way to the bird species and the flying species and the insect species and the insect species species in particular said, no problem. We could do that with ease. Creator goes to the plants and says, what about you? Could you create diseases for humans? But the plants refuse And they say, no, we could not, because what we have done is make it possible for mammals or the humans to live because we created long ago the atmosphere that they can breathe. And we continue to care for them like they are our children. So what we will do is for every disease that the animals and the birds and the insects make, we shall make a cure and we shall make a healing and we shall make a medicine. And this is obviously a teaching story that goes along with the long tradition of plant-based medicines that indigenous peoples have that goes well beyond the Western science worldview that they figured that out due to a trial and error relationship with plants, which I'll talk about more detail in other threads. In my story, it comes from this place of imagining what we would do in a period post-collapses if we've managed to survive a couple of generations from now in a world that would be greatly changed by those collapses. And what would parents be doing? What would they be creating in their children to help them move into adulthood with awareness of things that would keep the community in balance. So before I begin to read the novel, which I'm going to do on this thread of the podcast in sections with some pauses and some wider conversation around what's in the novel, I want to explain why I think I didn't try to pursue publishing it 10 years ago. And there is a mixture. One part is a confidence issue. And uh, not sure if this was Worthy of publication. But I think there was another piece about the dissatisfaction with leaving it as a purely written expression because I could see the world that I imagined in the novel very visually because that's how my mind works. I can conjure up imagery and vision much more easily than I can speak or write in words. And in the vision that I had for the world that the novel is set in, that was based on the idea that not only had we come through collapses, but a cycle of destruction and renewal had already taken place, that areas of the world had rewilded themselves, that regeneration had happened with the support of humans in some areas and with the withdrawal of humans in other areas. And so this world is more abundant. There have been many changes, but there is an awareness, a recent and lived memory of a couple of generations ago of those that went through a period that is similar, in my mind, to the lamentations periods of the past that humans have had cycles of destruction and renewal, have been part of that before and there's something about trying to look for the wisdom and understanding of ourselves as part of living systems that are, that go through those cycles and that the die back in a plant, in a tree, in a ecosystem, that that is for resources to regenerate and abundance to come again is a natural part of our living. Could it be something that would inspire those that came to it and read it, that abundance and beauty could return, that communities could become intact again, that oppression could be overturned and resource relationship could be restored to one of family, where our plant relations, our animal brothers and sisters and so on, where we're back from to where I believe they have originated from, and at the same time to explore what modernity would have left behind, what things would be integrated into the stories that people were telling, or what would be integrated into the ways that we lived in this post-collapse era, in this period of renewal. So here I am, 20, 20 10 years on, about to express it and put it out in the world. And I do realize that some things about it I'll want to change because of the progression in my imagination and in my understanding of the world. One of the things that I most want to include that isn't in the original story is a shift in the way that I tell the story about a boy and a girl. I would like to introduce some more aspects of gender variation in that and less polarized thinking about gender, because I realized that I've come a long way in understanding that from the young people that are around me and the world that is today. And one of the things that I've understood is that the concept of a polarized gender is very modern and that there are cultures around the world that have many genders and different means of expression. And species that care for not only inside their own species, but interspecies caring is something that we've only become awakened to again because of probably the change in understanding of a competitive world to a collaborative world because of the kinds of teachings that have been taught to us and been taught to our children about competition rather than compassionate, collaboration. So I I want to make sure that in the story that is held up. So there are changes that I would make, but I haven't read it in 10 years. And so for the first time, I'm going to begin reading it again, and I'll probably see those things along the way. So putting it out this way, I have one hope that perhaps I will find my own collaborators and community that want to co-create something beyond the life of this reading. But if that doesn't happen, then I will have read my way through a novel that I wrote for our children. Chapter 1 His father was calling again. He knew he'd have to get up now and face the day. He pulled back the blankets and reluctantly rolled off the sheepskin he'd purloined to put under him for extra warmth. He pulled on a jumper and headed into the main living area of the apartment. His mother was on the balcony, picking some spring greens and herbs, which she brought through to the kitchenette and started chopping into the eggs. Morning, they both called to him as he dropped into a chair at the small table. It's freezing, he moaned. Well it's warmer outside, his mum responded brightly. Spring is definitely en route. Here, get these into you and have some herb tea it'll warm you up. Yes, his dad jumped in, sounding a bit hyped. You'll need a big feed before the journey begins. He'd almost managed to forget that it was today, even though preparation had been going on for weeks, and he'd spent most of yesterday packing. He'd spent longest poring over the maps online, when he could, and carefully with his paper copy. It was all part of this first-journey gimmick, a new trend to initiate young people. Apparently, it started when he was just a kid by some group in a South City suburb, but it had sure caught on over the whole islands in different ways, his parents believed that it was an important part of passing on the new values in a real way. He wasn't so sure, but he did feel some excitement at the prospect of going off alone. His parents had gone on and on about how their parents, his grandparents, would never have been let do anything like what he was about to be able to do at his age, about how poor old granda and nana had regretted their lack of skills for self-reliance when the collapses began. They'd tried to pass new ways to his parents, and community resilience was high now, but he knew it hadn't been easy because his parents constantly told him so. Come on, daydreamer, you've got to get moving. His mum lifted away his plate and mug. Are you okay? Just tired and cold. Well, Rowan, Come on, you're ready though eh? his dad still sounded offbeat or overly cheerful. Yes, Dad, I'll go get my pack. Make sure you've put your tooth stick in and come back in for some pancakes I've made for the first day. They went with him to the outskirts of Fidsborough, past the large allotments in the new forest d twenty two where he was to collect the horse and caravan from the trader' site. When they came in the large gates, they were greeted by a rush of kids. He recognized Georgie, who'd been his teacher for the last month, and nodded hello. He knew some of the others, even some names, and smiled at them. You're off the day, ain't ya? Course he is yeet. Look, the wagon's all set. You'll look after Black Elder, won't ya? He's me uncle's and some boy last spring took a wagon through a river too fast, and poor Ned Foxy was lame for the rest of the summer. Near enough. Georgie came to his rescue. Don't worry, lads, I've taught him well. This fella's no wap. He's got some of the old ways. Bit of a whisperer in him, if you'd only believe it. The kids parted. Some leading the way over to Georgie's dad. "'who was holding Black Elder with a wry look of amusement. "'Well,' Rowan's dad said, "'he's all set, and here's the deposit we agreed "'until he brings back the cloth and other goods.' "'Georgie's dad lifted the large chicken crate "'and looked at the chicks. "'Rowan's mother spoke. "'They're all there, George, "'all hens, no cocks, and good and healthy too.' I've had them under a light in the apartment boiler room, nice and cosy, but they've had a few days now out on the balcony to get some air. If the spring hurries up, they should be fine. They looks grand, missus. You might even keep a few yourselves. There'll we plenty? They'll be in demand. As many as have gone past their best by this time, I find. Now, let's be getting Rowan on his way, shall we? Yes, it's time he was in his way. Rowan's dad seemed more restless than ever. Rowan climbed up the step and threw his pack on one of the side benches and came back down to give his mum and dad a quick hug. Watch out for emergency vehicles, but otherwise traffic will be slow. Like you, son, the pace should suit you. Rowan acknowledged the old joke about his thinking style with a smile. His mother didn't speak, but just hugged him again and shoved him towards the step. Georgie hopped up beside him. He'd told Rowan a few days back that he fancied a run to the countryside for a bit of hair-coursing, so would be accompanying him for the first day. Rowan? His dad stepped onto the side of the caravan and put out his hand. What? You know. You agreed. Hand over your giz. Right, yeah, I forgot. He fished in his jacket pocket and pulled out his battered giz. Now, it's all real, son. No virtual help, no map or connecting to people that way. You'll just have to talk to them face to face. Yes, Dad, I know. We'd better get going. His dad jumped away then, and he and Georgie clucked at the big black horse at the same time and smiled at each other. They were off. The children shouted and waved, and Rowan caught sight of his parents, his mum putting her arm around his dad in a way that looked like comfort as they wheeled out of the big gate. Georgie whistled two high-pitched blasts and his dogs Wheeler and Rasta shot out after them. Rowan sighed heavily. "'Relieved are you, boy?' Georgie asked. He was only a year or two older than Rowan, but seemed so much more like a man. Rowan knew Georgie hoped to get married this summer, and he supposed that was part of it. The traders all married young, and had families soon after, the largest family size now found in the islands, but still small compared to only a few generations back. Most had two or three kids some even four. But Rowan held back asking Georgie how many kids he might want. It seemed too weird. Black Elder seems excited, he commented, and I suppose I am relieved that it's finally started. The last while, it seemed like it wasn't for real. I mean, I know a few kids who've done something like this. Most only go through the motions. "'a few nights alone on the far side of the Phoenix Park "'or out to Wicklow for some venison and other preserved game. "'But I haven't met those that have gone the whole hog. Of course the horse is excited. "'It's going to get to long verges "'where it doesn't have to compete for tasty grass "'with half the city's other nags, "'and sure they'd all love a run in the open road. "'And I'd say you are too.' delighted to be going the whole hog, as you call it. It'll give you some status, boy, when you get back, especially amongst the girls, eh? Have you got one you want to impress? Ah, Georgie, I told you, I'm too slow-moving to catch a girl. Now, Rowan boy, if you're as good with women as you are with horses, you'll have no bother. At least that's what me dad tells me. But don't forget to use the gift. Ah, Georgie. "'Sir, I've no gift, just that I'm a bit slow-thinking, "'and I think horses don't like to be rushed either, that's all. "'There's more to it than that, boy. "'If you weren't stuck into the web any time it's runnin', "'looking up all that techno-magic, "'you'd be awake to real magic, in there.' "'He tapped Rowan lightly on the chest. "'I'm not like your people, Georgie. "'I don't go in for all that.' I know there's plenty of folks these days finding their way to it. My mother and her sisters are in some Celtic women's circle with a bunch of city women. They're following old ways, like my granny Mags. They don't call it magic, but I suppose that's as good a name as any for trying to connect to our animal family. You know, the American nomads have always called all the animals in that, and plants as well. Relations, brothers and sisters. Well, that's how I think of black elder, you know. He's like a brother. I really like him, Georgie. I know my parents and the other adults mean well. They're just scared we'll go back to the old ways that caused the collapses. They want us all to be like the American nomads who learned from their mistakes and their ancestors and not end up like the separate states who are trying to fight to chase resources or holing up in the new fort farms. But you know the islands aren't like that. Ireland's small. We've integrated all the new Irish that flooded here after the border collapses. Sure, we needed them. We needed everyone. And now we've taught them to laugh at the madness. Have the crack. Laugh with us. The conflicts are more than 30 years ago when my parents were tiny. I think we've a new sort of identity. The communities run things now. It's okay. But if we weren't so effing lazy, we wouldn't just muddle on and wait for others to get us back on track. You should see the stuff on the net, Georgie. I think the world's divided into those having a laugh or figuring out how they adapt, but backwards. We're like most of the island nations and remote places. Britain, New Zealand, Cuba, Mongolia, Tibet. But there must be something, I don't know. We're farther away and that means just get on with it. But the rest of the world, there's people still innovating. There's new technology every day. They will come up with ways to get the net back full time and power vehicles for speed again. Just you wait. Rowan, you're a mad, boy. But if that's your dream for now, let's just see if it's the same when you make it back from the journey. They fell silent for the rest of the way out of the city limits. People were out in the gardens and allotments along the way, getting the warming ground ready for new planting. Rowan looked at the hedgerows and small patches of woods where people were out gathering ramsons and nettles and spring greens. He was getting hungry and nipped into the caravan and pulled out his pack, coming forward with the pancakes for them both. They munched contentedly for a while, as the wagon moved steadily, until they could see the food forests and wider fields between. There there were people as well, and they stopped for a while in a section of open forage, and filled up with some of the non-native basics, greens and leaves. It was still way too early, even for the earliest fruits. Georgie pulled Black Elder up again, an hour or so later, into a watering stop and jumped down. Rowan climbed down too and went for a pee. When he came back, Georgie was shouldering a satchel and calling to his dogs, before they got too excited and went off without him. Right, boy, this is me. I'm heading up over that hill. It's far enough from the villages. Looks wild too. So, I should have a great day's sport ahead of me. I'll have plenty for marketing come tomorrow, which is a good thing. As you know, my Kathleen has a rake of things she's after before she'll set a date for the summer. Nothing too fancy, mind. She just wants a good set-up for us. She knows this is the best time to motivate a man before she marries me, eh? "'Good luck, Rowan boy.' "'He stuck out his hand, and Rowan shook it firmly and waved "'as Georgie jumped over the ditch with his dogs already ahead "'and strode up the hill after them. "'The sun was high enough now to warm the day, "'and Rowan wished he could follow Georgie chasing hares "'and then heading back home this evening. "'It was still in the laneway after a while.' It was as if Georgie vanished, or had never been there at all. Rowan turned, glad of Black Elder's company. He rubbed the big horse along the bridge of its nose. It seemed that the horse had had enough to drink. There was nothing for it but to get going again. Rowan checked the harness like he'd been taught, climbed up into the driver's dip, as Georgie called it, With a few clucks and gee-ups, they turned into the road and set off north. So that was chapter one. Reading it again, I can remember the world that I imagined this story taking place in very vividly that I've had in my mind's eye from the beginning of writing it and it is still alive in me when I read it. I imagine a decommodification of food in a post-collapse period. Food as a basic right, shelter as a basic right, were not something to be held in scarcity to make money for those who could extract value from these basic needs people have remembered that it is possible to create abundance in food and the food forests and the exchanges and barters that go on around food are about making sure everybody has enough rather than are about creating scarcity and price wars and making money off of that basic need of humans. And so I've also imagined what would all be repurposed if food was not a commodity what else could be allowed to flourish? And even down to the exchanges that can be made or the, the reconceiving of the assets and the resources that people already have. So in this chapter, Rowan's mother is making use of the boiler room of the apartment building that they live in to raise many, many chicks. And then she's able to use those as part of her bartering once they're bigger and She's got that access to a heated space. So it's this sort of rethinking. Yeah. What if everyone could go out and forage and could exchange and could access a lot of healthy, local, abundant food because all the systems were designed for that to happen, both urban systems and rural systems. What would that look like? And I also imagined what skills would have come back into the community and what would be normal for young people to know. So Rowan and Georgie are completely familiar with foraging wild plants in the regenerated forests, and the new species of plants that are available in the food forests that have had many years to mature. And So they're going to be able to meet their own needs along the way for even in this early period that I imagine it happening in early spring, there's still some spring greens. There's things that are coming around in their season that they know about. And Georgie's going off hunting hares. And so there's wild foods in the landscape that can be hunted and bartered. And that relationship with things being in right relationship has come back around so that it's a plant-based diet. It's not a vegan diet because things have regenerated and there's been a changed relationship with the reduction in domestic animals. But there is still some small scale use of of chickens, for example, at levels that are not intensive. And all this sort of changes have happened in my imagination and they can go out and get their food. And I did remember reading it again that those inspirations I spoke about from indigenous peoples, and especially Native American teaching stories that I've come across and heard, either from reading about them or from meeting some Native Americans here in Ireland and in the States, I realised that I did put them in there as the American nomads, and then, of course, I had remember I knew that I had put in the traders, and I had conceived of the traders as our own Irish travellers, a a tradition of nomadism, a tradition of community that exists today. And that despite the kinds of suffering that Indigenous peoples have, uh, and nomadic peoples in particular, have suffered the world over, as the system we are in now goes into these landscapes, goes into these edges and pushes the people who live there out of them. And that history that's gone on from colonisation for the centuries that we know has pushed peoples to the edge and and Irish travellers have been marginalised and pushed to the edges and all of the problems internally in a community that come from that exist in these nomadic and forcibly settled and forcibly schooled and all of these things and controlled through mechanisms even like uh, social welfare. I know older traveler women that I know who've talked about what happened when there, when there was a change in the way that they lived from barter and traveled and had good relationships with the people of the countryside and brought in trade and brought in things to farmers wives that wouldn't have been available to them easily. And they, they brought ribbons and pegs and the men brought their skills in tinsmithing and made buckets and worked in the fields and then moved on. And so this other kind of relationship that was then destroyed and the barter slowly slipped away. I am aware of some of that history through friendships with members of the traveling community that I've known over the last 20 years. One of the things that if collapses come that there's a very tight-knit community still in many of the, despite all of the issues of poverty and marginalisation and those communities, and that there is still a community there, there is still familial relationships that hold up under collapse. Reading The Grapes of Wrath, I remember thinking that was a period of collapse in the 1930s in the States when economic collapse brought about land grabbing and the pushing of people off of land. And what happens in those periods is people go back down to their family units and they look after themselves within a family unit. And if your family is very spread out and if it's not an intact network, then your family unit may be very few people and that affects your resilience. If you're in a community, if you're living together closely dependent on each other, then other than blood family might be part of your community. But I know that within the traveler community, that if the collapses affected all society, I wondered if familial bonds uh, might actually put them into a position of being more resilient than people who've lost connection across communities. That's how I imagine them in the, in the novel. I imagine them as people who return to their trading early on in the collapses, who return to their love and knowledge of horsemanship and wagon pulling and having the ability to move about if there were chains of supply that meant that cars and didn't have access to petrol and that there wasn't electricity enough to charge vehicles. I imagine significant disruption has happened, especially in an island nation like Ireland. And so I also see a little mention in this chapter of Rowan's father talking about emergency vehicles because I thought if you're pushed to an extreme edge of survival and you do have some resources and then afterwards you sit around in community councils and surviving groups and say, well, what will we do with the remaining oil? Is it going to be possible for people to have cars again, given that we know the supplies are now significantly curtailed? And I thought maybe they would say, let's keep them for ambulances. Let's keep them for things that we can respond to as communities and everybody else is going to get back on shanks, mare and walk about or cycle about or in the case of the traders that are going out to find things to exchange and bring back to the larger population areas that were once cities that there might be the the traveller wagons and caravans back out on the roads. And that's where Rhodes family then have been part of this interaction with with them that they realize you've something to teach our young people and could we create these uh, journeys and that's what we're seeing emergent in chapter one. One other aspect that I imagined in relation to why the Irish travelers might have some added resilience in a collapse scenario has to do with how far you fall in economic collapses is affected by how far you've risen. And so those communities that are more impoverished and more marginal and may not experience an economic collapse the same way that those who have gathered wealth and been full of investments and had power or status changes, and I've seen that in my lifetime in the 2007-2008 collapses and who was affected and had conversations with my contemporaries at the time, who friends that didn't, that we hadn't accrued a huge amount of wealth, were really used to struggling with making ends meet. We didn't relate to some of the conversations that were dominating the media about people who had lost a great deal because we hadn't had that much to lose. Our lives weren't so changed. I am in that same feeling in releasing this podcast now having come through a year of a pandemic because of spending 10 years in developing our small food forest, our demonstration permaculture site and our network of community and our lives of simplicity and living in a small off-grid cottage, that there are things that we haven't suffered and we feel the sense of privilege and luck that we chose to go this way than people who are living in other circumstances throughout the world and throughout Ireland in this pandemic, not so much has changed in our lives. It's changed a lot for my young people and the restrictions for them. But I think for myself and my husband, there's things that we have around us that we already had. And I suppose what that makes me think about is that I I wrote this novel, that where I came from, up with the ideas of food forests and regenerated forests and forage and the raising of domestic animals in small amounts and barter exchange and community and collaboration is that this world already exists in part in my world. It's not fully regenerated. It's not fully intact. It stresses exist because it coexists with the existing system. And it can be a choice that impoverishes you to go more towards community, more towards collaborative work, because it's not the way the system's set up. But I at least have glimpses that this other life is possible in Ireland, in people and communities that I know, that I've travelled and experienced elsewhere in the world, and that still exist in a few wild and intact places and peoples of the world. So That's where the hopeful piece in the novel is. I didn't want to write a novel set in the middle of the collapses, in the middle of apocalyptical experiences and whatever conflicts and difficulties might arise across the world in those periods. Because I realized that not only is the suffering already here in the world, there are people already in conflict zones, there are people already suffering from this World system that we operate under, but there are also people thriving and there is also regenerative abundance. So I that's where I imagine that we're still in a world where there is still suffering, but there is also still pockets of abundance. And regeneration happening. The characters were written imagining children as descendants of people I know today. The urban dwelling Rowan is imagined as a potential descendant of one of my children. And there is within Rowan the giz and the attachment to the intermittent internet that still exists in that time. I asked my husband, who's very technical, what would happen in a post collapse scenario to things like the internet. And he said, well, it might still exist in pockets and there could be interruptions due to energy or cables or other things, but it could potentially still exist in short intervals. So I've left it in the story. But I imagine the children that I know today who are very digitally connected and have grown up as digital natives and are very familiar with tapping into that source of knowledge, that there would be this residual desire in Rowan to still be able to tap into that knowledge and the stories that would pass down through young people of a golden era of technology. He's still hearkening after that era. And then next chapter, you'll meet the character who is a descendant of more of a living tradition that I know is alive today of traditional wisdoms and inner knowledge that continues to be held and passed on in different ways across different peoples in Ireland. And so in the other thread of this launch batch of the podcast is an interview with Judith Hoad. I'm imagining the other young person in the story as a lineage that might have come from Judith or someone like her, where there's an unbroken tradition of connection to the natural world and to rituals and spirituality of the land. Now Rowan's moving north towards this other character and we'll see what happens as they, their world views interact later on in the story. Leaving it there with my thoughts around the conceiving of the story and my thoughts that are stimulated by reading the first chapter again after such a long gap. I'm also struck by the fact that I'm a a very novice writer. I wrote this novel. I had once also written another novel a few years before that and been part of a local amateur writers group and written some short stories and poems. But it is the challenge, I believe, as I understand it from other people who are much more experienced, accomplished writers than I am, that there is... A challenge where you're trying to show, not tell. And the wraparound st- stuff that I'm talking about now is, is what, and I'm left wondering, is that if I was, if you were reading this or seeing this in some other way without the addition of the explanations that I'm giving, is that in the story? Is that what's conjured up? Is enough of, of the world that I imagine around it there? as happens for those that write, you know, the great, enormous epic novels like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, who was inspired by, lived in Wicklow at one point, and was inspired by how the Irish lived as simple people like the Hobbits and the great war that was he'd lived through and participated in the First World War, and then the war on the horizon of the Second World War that there was this world all around him and we don't necessarily need to know that to read in the way he's got the talent and skill and also dedication of years and years of conceiving of whole peoples and languages and landscapes, that it all comes alive. And I feel inadequate in that and hope that perhaps others might come and want to help collaborate to bring this alive. If it resonates, if it is a story, if it's purpose and vision for giving our young people today, especially 10 years ago, there were not the Greta Thunberg movement inspired waves and waves of young people very aware of near term human extinction and potential potential full collapse of living systems on the planet in a domino effect of what may come. And they live under that umbrella of fear. And so maybe this is the time to get this better out there. I don't imagine those young people listening to this podcast particularly, although who knows, I'm putting it out in the world. I really don't know if any or what audience might be there for this. But If there are people with the means and knowledge and resources that would like to see something of this story come out there for the same reason that I think it might be nice to talk about another vision, because I think when you have all of the movies and stories that are in this new genre that's apparently called cli-fi, climate science fiction, that it's often set within the apocalyptical period, within the awful times and the the sad times and I wonder about that about telling our children um through the means of the media they currently have access to, especially that cusp of transition age, the ten eleven twelve thirteen year olds if if they are seeing those stories that doesn't help them imagine a different world. And I'd like that to be possible. And also you'll hear talking of the emergence of, of describing and talking about magic. And while my children absolutely loved the Harry Potter stories and magical stories and, and fantasy stories, and we all still really like that world of going into fantasy worlds in different creative ways. I think there's something about what I call the real magic in the world, the real knowledge that's there about the plant world, about the experience of the world as actually having the origins maybe of those fantasy stories is based on something very real in the world. And I wanted to try and bring that out so that may show up in other ways in subsequent chapters.